2: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We're going to pause in usually a slot that we have at 831 Wall Street time on economics. And look at the reality of asset management. We do this with Oliver Beta. He's the chief executive officer of Allianz. He's been on a tour of duty uh, for a good number of years to see uh, their success. All John and I want to know is you have the football sponsorship of the soccer team, the football team from Munich as well. We see the sponsorship of sports. What's the value to Allianz, the payoff of Bayern Munich?
3: Oh, it's uh, hugely positive because that's the best brand in sports, in, at least in our country. And we've been associated uh, with it for many, many years. I'm very, very proud of it.
2: Now you have a bond bear market. Some would say your best brand in acquisition was the grossel Combine of Pacific Investment Management Company years ago. Give us an update on bond asset management and the view forward given this great bond bear market.
3: Well, the current circumstances are tough, um, but it's very good to be with the best company in these environments, right? So we see a flight to quality over time. People are watching, but if because we have a very, very long-duration business model, we look forward. We believe it's going to be fantastic for PIMCO and us over the next few years as the interest rates stabilize, because the money will come back into bonds. And think about accumulation at the interest rates that we have. People often sure. don't run a simple NPV model and say, what does it mean if you reinvest at Five percent or 4.75 rather than zero.
4: You buried an important line there. It was in there, but it was buried. When interest rates stabilize, they're not stable. What did you make of what happened in the gilt market in the last couple of weeks? What are the lessons you've learned from that?
3: Uh, The first one is um, if you have a political idea that it's not anchored in economics, it's very dangerous, particularly if you're not the world um, reserve currency like the US dollar. We have learned that, number one, Brexit uh, now will start to pay the price, and you see that. And the second thing is that markets have become to dominate again. We're coming out of 15 years of quantitative easing, no price for risk, nothing, no fiscal discipline, no monetary discipline, and suddenly that's back. And people have to get used to, to the fact that the laws of physics hold again, even for governments.
5: Well, and we were talking about how this gives room and gives rise, once again, to bond vigilantes. Yes. Are you the bond vigilantes? Do you actually actively go through some of the policies and say, not going to buy this company, not going to buy this nation because of what they're doing?
3: I wouldn't be thinking about negative selection because that's what not what we should talk about, but we're looking at countries and companies that properly manage. You know, if you have a dual deficit, think about that three years ago, we had three times the, the financial stimulus in the United Kingdom that we saw uh, a few days ago, nothing happened in the markets, right? Nothing happened, everybody was sleeping. And then suddenly people wake up to the fact that what uh, has been done is really a disaster and suddenly the prices are coming. Why is that? Because of inflation, people have started to reprice assets fundamentally, not just bonds. And by the way, we are not even at the the midpoint of repricing of assets. We've just seen the liquid assets repriced. The rest will come now.
5: When you said actively selecting specific companies, specific nations, this speaks to the active selection that so many different fund managers talk about now yes. as really rating supreme. Where does that leave passive management? It's really
3: interesting. So it is different between equity markets. If you have large cap equity, you can invest in them uh, very effectively through index. If you're in the bond market you, and you don't know where things are going, you better be with the people that know what is happening and can differentiate. It's a great proof point, so I hope that all our colleagues are proving themselves now. I'd like to repeat <laughs> something
4: you said moments ago. The liquid markets have repriced, the illiquid markets haven't yet. Yeah. What's that gonna look like? We have spent a long time talking about pulling back the veil on some of the carnage that might take place because of 10 years worth of zero interest rates. And what we get told is that in public markets and credit balance sheets are strong, the resilience is there, the maturity walls is way out on the horizon, not coming soon. What's going to happen in private markets? I, um, I'm not a great
3: investor, so let's just start. We, sure, I'm, no. I'm trying to do to be I a just good risk, up risk manager, which said. is very hard. But it's very hard to see it, and therefore it doesn't mean it, it doesn't exist. So people have to face a lot of scrutiny now on how the, the funding is. So watch out more, not just leverage, but liquidity. I think, and we saw that in the in the gilt market. People do underestimate liquidity mm-hmm. uh, uh, traps, and that's something that we need to look for. And you see that in private equity. When people look where are earnings really coming from, are they trading amongst each other? Are there true exits? Mm-hmm. What are the funding structures? So it's going to go through real estate, private equity, just slow, slow motion, but it's going to come.
2: The gravity is back. The risk-free rate is back as well. Talk about conservative money, Pension money, forget about LDI and the gyrations in London, just normal institutional money. What's the shock going to be as the risk-free rate returns?
3: So the key thing is really, and that's what we also have to do, think about resilience, right? The point is the the shocks will be harder than people anticipate. The diversification is the thing that is never there when you need it the most. So people really need to look at their models and saying, you know, how come the world completely missed out on inflation? I mean, when you think about the fact that in November of last year, we've started to buy inflation-linked bonds a lot, a lot of people were still saying, yeah, but in the middle of this was all central banks, even some of our biggest economies. So the question is, why is that happening? And the first answer is, I don't know why, but what I know is we have to de-risk at, so at the So how do you de-risk?
2: Do you just bring in duration? Do you have to change your actuarial assumptions? Exactly. How do you de-risk Systematically with adult going, money?
3: Yeah, the adult money is basically, yes, if we were you know, completely... Mm. In an endowment, you mm-hmm. would really selectively take risk. In this environment, we can't with a double A rating and one of the few places in the world a I rate even give the impression that we don't have our tail risk under control.
5: Given that you're based in Europe right now, how concerned are you about the prospect that the pain that you're experiencing now, both from a business and an investment perspective, is not just going to be this winter. It's also going to be next winter. It's also going to be potentially for years to come if there is not some sort of sustainable energy plan put into effect.
3: So I have to be a realist but I'm also a born optimist otherwise I think I couldn't do the job right so the first thing is I think Welcome particularly to surveillance. <laughs> the key thing is that uh, people I think have been overselling Germany if I may say so so I'll give you an example. We have had um, demand contraction on gas, 15% already this year. Now, much, for example, Italy has been only 2%. So we will have most likely enough gas to come through the winter. People do not factor that in. Now, the second question is, what will be the implication for industry to reprice its products and its production supply chains to a higher energy price? And that's happening. Mm-hmm. I really believe in, in our engineering capabilities, very comparable to Western Switzerland, where everybody. Said when you know the Swiss franc was floated that all the manufacturing companies would die. No, no, we invest in innovation, will be very good. The key thing is, however, we need for Europe to realize now one important thing Germany needs to really focus on reinventing its business model. It's over with cheap energy from Russia, um, successful. exports to China and America, Mm -hmm. providing all the security. I mean, that three formula is ending. And that will require a lot of energy on the German people Mm -hmm. to fix its model, which means we have less attention and tolerance for doling out money to other people.
2: This has been really, really informative, sir. Just wonderful to have you in with us. But this isn't why we had you in. You people finance Bayern Munich, the soccer team in Munich. Are you guys going to steal Harry Kane from Tottenham? I mean, that's the only reason we had you. Are you going to bankroll this football team in Munich to steal the jewel of the United Kingdom?
3: Even if I knew the answer, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to tell you.
2: I mean, this that, is, this that, is in the, the zeitgeist that's, right that's now. That's
4: the only reason we had the Allianz,
3: I called
2: up Qantas and I said, get the guy from Allianz in. I said, get him in I'm so sorry. <laughs> because these are the people that are going to steal Harry Kane. Are we going to do the show from, from Bayern Munich?
4: I think October. says Fantastic like a year from fans. now. I have to you say, know. I do like the Dortmund fans too, though. They're, yeah, they're And impressive. you know,
3: every force German is our client, so we have a lot of fans. <laughs> so you like fans. the Dortmund have fans? Have a lot of fans okay. of,
4: it's going to be very diplomatic. Yeah. And then Juventus, the From Allianz Colleen, Arena, Colleen and
3: Juventus. How I many love. stadiums
4: do you have? Quite a few. Quite a few. <laughs> Twelve. <laughs> Twelve. Twelve across that Europe yeah. or worldwide?
3: No, worldwide. For example, in Sao Paulo, the stadium's also branded Allianz. It's been a great investment. Have that you been Amazing. There? Yeah, it's really. And people pay a lot of attention. And you know, football <laughs> does something that politics can't do. This, as we unite people. We bring people together. We make them enjoy their lives regardless. By the way, uh, most often on both sides, you know, whether winners and losers. And therefore, it's it's great. It's bipartisan.
2: Do you realize if Harry King goes from Tottenham to Munich, it's un-American? I mean, that's un-American. I've been
4: trying to tell Tom, greatest sport in the world. Just the greatest sport in the world. Nothing close to it. It just is truly the most brilliant sport not well, so yeah. well, the come cup. over?
3: regardless whether it's juventus right. or bayern would be delighted to host you
2: well thank you we, we, we'll take that under it, advisement can you two have a discussion in the world cup first discussion in the world cup and bloomberg surveillance it's like you want to throw that in deal. there
4: yeah germany and Qatar. what are you looking for sir do you think you can make it happen win a world cup in another one i
3: don't know it's a lot of a lot about passion but it's also about you know the right moment and to have the energy when it really matters. I'm certainly crossing my fingers, but the most important thing is to have a great, great, great tournament.
4: Can you tell FIFA we never want to do this Winter World Cup ever again? I think it's a travesty. I really do. I, Lisa, I what do you think? We're taking a month off in the middle of the season to oh, do Oh, yeah, a World that's Cup. idiotic. That's it's, like it's, hockey. It's Come ridiculous. On. It's that's like Doing that. air conditioning in the football stadiums. I, yeah, interesting choice, but I it is it.
3: there. And so I think we're always great at criticizing things. I think we we're fantastic be looking forward
4: at criticizing to things, fantastic. things, sir. Yeah. That's what this show's about. <laughs> thank you for coming. Well, it's good to see you. Frasier,
6: the ALN CEO. <laughs>
2: Right now, and this is a joy with the uh, chaotic weeks that we've had in a Monday into another week of chaos. Bob Miller joins us. He's head of America's Fundamental Fixed Income at BlackRock with decades of experience. Bob, I want to cut to the chase in the great bond bear market. What is the level of pain on level? I was talking to Axel Weber in Washington, and he said, forget about the numbers, the spreads. Look at level. Bond prices are down. What does it signal?
7: Well, Tom, it, it, I think that's a great point about uh, spreads versus all-in levels. So the cost, you know, debt spreads, for example, IG and high-yield spreads, aren't at recessionary-wides that we've seen historically. But the all-in cost of capital has gone up substantially, right? And, and, and in the investment-grade space, you're talking about a, an index that's now a 6% yield. And in high yield space, you've got companies that were funding a year, a year and a half ago at 4 to 5% that now can't get funded inside of 10% and, and may not be able to fund at all. So the cost of capital has gone up substantially. And I understand that there are a lot of really good savvy liability management uh, strategies that firms employed and households employed by refinancing their mortgages two years ago and that there's got, you've got these very attractive liabilities on the balance sheet, but the incremental spend, right, the next thing that one might invest in, right. whether it's residential or, or commercial, is going to be substantially more expensive from a debt capital standpoint.
2: Let's talk about the great Dan Fuss at Loomis Sales, and he would say, that's great, you've got the free lunch of a high nominal yield, but do you buy that nominal yield into reduced credit quality, across all of fixed income assets. Is there credit clouds out there that make this not an easy decision?
7: Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, you, you guys were just talking about this. The, the Fed is on a mission. This is a very intentional and aggressive tightening of domestic monetary conditions in an effort to slow growth, slow demand, specifically loosen up the labor market a little bit um, to get inflation back to target. So, so, definitionally, there, there are going to be some things that probably break along the way. It'll be really, really hard to do it without some of that happening. And, and but, but I also think at the same time, here's one of the interesting things. Volatility is so high in the rates market right now that it's really hard to look, you know, three months forward or six months forward. It's, it's hard to look more than three to six days forward because the vol is so high, right? But I think if you can take a step back and think about the valuation of high quality fixed income assets today, you can build a pretty reasonable portfolio, treasuries, agency mortgages, investment grade corporates, where you can go in and do the name selection so that you can avoid some of the the, the more stressed or potentially forward distressed names. You can build a high quality portfolio, intermediate maturity in the five to 6% range, including treasuries. So you've got a flight to quality asset in there in a, in a shock scenario. That's, we haven't been able to do that in, in nearly two decades yep. i mean it's it's things are starting to look reasonable i get it that we're probably not at the bottom and there's more stress to come. But things are starting to look pretty reasonable if you can take a longer time horizon.
5: That That is the key point, if you could take a longer time horizon. And I wonder about some of these mutual funds or open-ended funds where there could potentially be withdrawals, especially when it comes to investment-grade credit. It makes sense perhaps on a thesis basis. But on a real basis, investment-grade is underperformed dramatically because of the rate story as well as this forced selling that we've seen from international investors to sell what you can, not what you want to. How much are you concerned about about that creating some sort of fissure in the short term as you see things like what happened in the UK for some selling.
7: 100% Lisa that is exactly the right be- thing to be focused on. We've seen this movie before right when when you tighten financial conditions this aggressively this abruptly things are going to break and where do they break first almost always it's in the levered strategy the levered business model. You know, I would look at. I would argue in the UK that yes, the, the push toward, you know, a much more aggressive fiscal policy, kicked off more pressure in an already deteriorating market. But the proximate cause of the real stress in the long end volatility was the levered LDI business model and the increased margin calls. Right. So if you're if you're levered, if you have to borrow to sustain your strategy, and importantly, if you have to pay higher margin calls, margin costs. Excuse me. To 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 maintain your leverage, you're in a really difficult spot right now. So those business models, you know, kind of should be stressed. And I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see some more of that before this is over, over the next three to six months.
4: Bob, thank you, sir. As
0: always, Bob Miller there of BlackRock. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
6: Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you.
4: So Laurie Kavacina joins us now, the head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Laurie, it wasn't about 3Q earnings. It was about guidance for 4Q and beyond. What are we learning so far?
8: So, look, I think so far in reporting season, John, I've been a little bit disappointed that it sounded a lot like the last couple reporting seasons. So we're hearing things like the tone around labor is improving a little bit, not seeing any major cracks yet in terms of either the consumer or demand. Um, But companies are battening down the hatches and getting ready for choppier times. So at least there's that. Um, but I think that in terms of, you know, if you wanted the earnings Band-Aid ripped off, and that's what a lot of investors have been telling me, so far what I'm hearing is I don't know if we're going to get it this reporting season. I think we may have to wait till, you know February, March to get that.
2: Uh, Laura, you and uh, Ben Layler are on the same page. Ben Laidler starts off by saying the first ever so slight glance here at earnings are a less bad start. And then you talk about moving to high quality. Define what high quality is as a comfortable place to be.
8: So high quality is a factor discussion that I have with a lot of investors. If you talk to your average portfolio manager, small cap or large cap, especially in the small cap space, odds are they've done some sort of back test that tells them that things like positive earnings and high ROE outperform over time. So come invest with me because that's the kind of portfolio I run. And so what we're starting to see is that after a summer in which the low quality stats, so negative earners, highly shorted names, uh, negative ROE, low ROE, those names were actually working pretty well coming off the June low on a relative basis. And what we're seeing now is that more of the high-quality versions right. the positive earners, the high ROE, the lowly shorted names are starting to work, which frankly, Tom, is a silver lining heading into the end of the year because that actually bodes well for active manager performance.
2: To me, Lori, this goes to the risk-free rate returning here, and maybe it has to do with big combinations like Kroger and Albertson. But all of a sudden, the zombies have to report, as what we're really talking about here is not high-quality but that all of a sudden it's zombie November?
8: I think that's a fair way to look at it, Tom. But, you know, I would also say it depends on your definition of zombie a little bit. Um, I think that in general, when you're going into sort of a lower growth, Uncertain time, investors do cling to those higher quality names, and typically those are the ones that do come through, manage through challenging situations a little bit better. So I think that you know investors are sort of circling, circling up, closing the ranks, um, and really just clinging to what's worked over time. And as a lot of PMs say to me, you're not going to get beaten up by sticking to your philosophy. Where you are going to get beaten up is if you underperform when you've deviated from your philosophy. Lori, how much could you
5: see uh, the S&P getting to that 3200 level, which is the base case for Mike Wilson over at Morgan Stanley, even with some of the constructive feel that you have in select names and in select industries?
8: So I think it's a great question, Lisa, and I and I understand why that number is important. You know, when I talk to my friends in the technical strategy community, they'll often say 3500, 3200 are kind of the next big battlegrounds, and I see that as well from a fundamental perspective. 3500 is your median recession drawdown, a 27% drawdown from peak. But if the market starts to think that the Fed is not going to be able to pull that off, and that we're going to price in something more challenging from an economic perspective, an average drawdown. Was about 32 percent from uh, in a recession going back to the 30s and that takes you to that 3200 mark and if you go back to the pandemic so we lost 34 percent peak to trough and so i think that 3200 mark if 35 doesn't hold i think 3200 is the next natural place to go but it's hard for me to imagine we go too much lower than that just because in the face of the pandemic i mean frankly when life was on the line and there was just a massive uncertainty ahead of investors That's only as bad as the market fell. So I think 3,200 is a good place to look if 3,500 doesn't hold. But 3,500 is proving to be a major battleground here for good reason.
5: Well, Lori, how hard is it to convince some of your clients to be optimistic, to be constructive when there is this high likelihood of that psychological level
8: on the index? I think that what's interesting is I talk to people about it from a positioning perspective. What is the next big thing that you need to do? And I show them my charts basically showing that defensives are at peak valuation relative to both cyclicals and secular growth. And I tell them, you know, I've been traveling around the country uh, pretty nonstop since June. And I tell them, you know, everyone I talk to has plenty of defense. They've cleaned up their portfolios. They own as much staples or utilities as they're ever going to own the next thing to do is to go on offense. And that really resonates with a lot of people because they know from that experience over the summer, going back to the conversation with Tom about quality, when the low quality stuff started to move, that is not where they were positioned and that's where they started to see some underperformance in their portfolio. So I think people understand that if you're a longer term investor, eventually the tide will turn. And frankly, there's just not a lot people need to do anymore on the defensive side. They're already there.
4: Hey, Laurie, wonderful to catch up with you. Laurie Calvacina there on the latest in this market from RBC.
2: The research piece of the weekend in foreign exchange, Abraham Rabari wrote it. He is global head of FX analysis at Citigroup. We're thrilled he could join us after his attendance in Washington. Abraham, what I noticed in Washington is little focus on central banks and maximum focus on dollar liquidity among the flush countries and the ones more challenged. How critical is a dollar shortage worldwide?
9: Well, I would say the dollar was the talk of the town in in Washington, but the message that we came away with was actually a little bit different. We we did come away with thinking the Fed is still the central focus. And when it comes to the dollar, there's a lot of concern, but really the sense there isn't very much that could be done about it unless the Fed was going to veer off its u- unique focus on inflation at present. And when it comes to foreign exchange markets, as much of a concern as they are, right now they seem to be operating in a relatively orderly way. So yes, FX funding markets have started to show some signs of concern, but we're not nearly at a point where policy interventions are uh, likely to be imminent.
2: I've got to go to the immediate, what does the, What does the Bank of Japan, the Ministry of Finance do in Japan with their unique experience? What is the reality of a second intervention's efficacy after a failed first intervention?
9: Well, we expect more of the same. So we think that second intervention is is going to come likely very soon, could be as early as today. And uh, we saw the rhetoric ramp up late on Friday. And at the same time, we got Governor Kuroda reassert that uh, Japan was different, that more monetary easing was required to bring inflation back up. So we see no reason for the efficacy to change uh, in, in the Japanese case. And, and therefore, we do think that just as in the first case, Dollar-yen would come down once you see those signs of intervention, and then it would creep right back up as U.S. rates go back up.
5: Well, Ibrahim, some people say it's not a failed uh, intervention the first time around. Their goal was simply to slow the pace of the depreciation of the yen versus the dollar. If that's the case, where is the new red line in the sand, this idea of when they will get really concerned and have to rethink a whole host of issues? Is it 150? Is it 160? Is it 180?
9: (laughs) So I have sympathy with uh, with that statement. So we think there is no clearly defined red line, but if there is one, it's probably defined by the politics or when inflation starts to uh, credibly be above, above 2%. And that is certainly north of 160 on that latter criterion. And we don't think the politics will probably become acute before then. So it's quite a long way away from here. And until then, uh, Prime Minister Kishida in, in New York said himself that It was dollar-yen moving 30 handles in a year, two handles in a day that was raising this concern. So it was about the pace of appreciation in dollar-yen, not uh, the level. So we don't see a line in the sand uh, anywhere close to the current.
5: level. So perhaps that's the future crisis. The current crisis, or perhaps it's been somewhat averted, is in the United Kingdom where we're going to be hearing from Jeremy Hunt a couple of times throughout the day trying to stave off some of the pain that we saw over the past few weeks of volatility. How much credence do you give to this idea of foreign investors' coming back to the UK at a time when the bond vigilantes, if they won, that means a sooner and potentially deeper recession?
9: So we think the bar for foreign investors to return to the UK en masse is very high. And uh, at the heart of that, I would quote what we think are probably the two most relevant statistics an 8% current account deficit, which I think reflects some of the broader challenges the UK is facing and real interest rates that are still just about negative and certainly one to two percent below those in the U.S. So I think in that kind of environment, the bar for for investors to see major appeal in the U.K. is incredibly high.
2: It was something Ibrahim to talk to Raghun Rajan, a Booth School, the former leader of the Indian Central Bank, about the flow realities of emerging markets. Is it like the '90s for emerging markets right now? Well, I would say there is a
9: there's a lot of optimism, maybe. A, a touch of complacency when it comes to the large emerging markets at present. And if you take foreign exchange as an example, the appreciation of the dollar has been much more extensive against the developed markets than it's been uh, against uh, emerging markets. So at present, we see uh, more concern about frontier markets, a lot less about the emerging markets. But one of, one of the issues I'm concerned with is that that could change, that maybe there is uh, a bit too much complacency that uh, the large emerging markets are in a better position uh, on on the balance sheet side, economically, to some degree, even even for inflation. So we're concerned, but the base case is that maybe we have to watch uh, some of the developed markets yeah. like the UK a bit more closely. Then there's all this uh, macro
2: babble, Ibrahim. Where's a trade I can make money on into Q4? I mean, forget about the IMF sixty thousand feet stuff. Where can I make some money in the next ninety days?
9: So we we think it's more of the same. So the that, that pattern of uh, Higher global interest rates, lower equity prices, and a stronger dollar, we think, will continue into year-end. And there are these balance sheet pressures that make that even more likely. So in foreign exchange, we see further dollar upside, against, in particular, uh, the, the risky foreign currencies. So, for example, continuing to be short the Australian dollar against the U.S. dollar we think has promised into the end of the year.
5: Just to be clear, to elaborate a little bit on that point, is the faith in a stronger dollar from here predicated on this idea that the Federal Reserve is going to raise rates close to 5% by early next year? Or is it predicated on the idea that the economic data coming in will continue to be strong? And that is the reason for these rate hikes, that really it's the resilience of the economy rather than the rate hikes themselves.
9: The two are related, but I would put more weight on uh, on the Fed and uh, and those rate hikes. And that is because they do reflect to some degree the economic outperformance of the U.S. But the central driver of dollar strength has been the decline in asset prices around the world. And for that, uh, Fed interest rates and U.S. real rates are the primary driver. So both matter, but it is more about the Fed right now than about U.S. growth.
4: Hey, Ibrahim. Always wonderful to hear from you, sir.
0: Ibrahim Rakhbari there of City.
6: Start your journey at steeple.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L dot com.
4: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
2: Not a Rare Occurrence is a discussion with Leland Miller of China Beige Book to illuminate on China. He is just outstanding, the co founder and CEO of the hugely prestigious um, effort. Leland, I got to go to the immediate news. The great George Magnus over in uh, London today says he's never seen anything, even in pestilence and conflict, like a postponing of China GDP. This is your wheelhouse. What was your response when they postponed Q3 GDP?
10: Well, look, I. I think the most obvious reason is that they are very busy on the party, Congress. You know, you saw all those uh, pictures of people in rapt attention at jails and statistics bureaus just sitting there very, very silently and without moving, watching Xi's <laughs> speech. They probably just can't can't work because they're too busy listening. But, you know, th- I don't think there's anything terribly nefarious behind it. Uh, you know, we, we we see what the data are weak. They've been admitting the data are weak. Now, I think this is probably making sure that there's not just another bomb dropping off in the middle right. of, a, of a very choreographed event.
2: Forget about the choreographed event. What happens in the unchoreographed 2023 to the new dynastic Xi?
10: Well, look, it'll take a few months for for Xi to formally get the, the, the three positions. And so the question then will be, You know where does he pivot if at all? Um, Everyone wants to see a pivot on COVID zero. Uh, It's there's been no indication that that pivot's coming. You know you could see how they would do it uh, the rollout in in 2023, but you know it's 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 not just announcing COVID zero is over. It is saying uh, you know you know here's the policy, here's how we're going to do the rollout, here's how we're going to deal with the fallout, and 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 it's not at all clear that this isn't a you know you know a many month maybe year long transition. So is she going to pivot on the economy? Probably not. Is he going to pivot on COVID zero? At some point, yes, but probably not soon.
5: Weren't there some small pivots, though, Leland, within this speech, basically around uh, basically having a more business friendly environment, both for national and international companies?
10: yeah look, I mean it, it's hard at this point to see what's talk and what's not. i mean if you if you remember how excited investors got all throughout 2022 when you know some party official, Leo Huod, Lee Kucheon would come out and say, look, we're we're doing this differently or we're easing this crackdown or we're going to provide this stimulus' And nothing meaningful ever happens. So we'll have to wait and see. I think it would behoove Xi to to have some sort of outreach, uh, particularly with the U.S.-China tensions, to you know, to the Europeans. I think you're going to see some of that going forward. Uh, but in terms of making China more appealing to investors, you have to have regulatory certainty. You have to have some sort of uh, idea of growth. You have to end COVID zero. You know, there there's there's a lot of obstacles. It's not just saying we're going to be we're going to be friendly.
5: Yeah, the idea of growth is key here. Economists predict that Chinese growth will slow to 3.3%. So this year, a lot of people say that that's probably a highball estimate. I'm assuming that you probably think so, given that you've talked about a two-handle. The official uh, target is 5.5%. The gap between those would be the biggest since they started setting GDP targets in the early 1990s. How much do you think that this is going to be a problem for this government, where they start to inject more stimulus and start to support the housing market, versus a reality of the new China in a new regime with a bigger middle class.
10: Yeah, I don't think it's a problem at all for them because I think once they they descended into lockdowns in the spring, the the five and a half handle was not only gone, but even the the fake let's pretend that we got somewhere near five was gone. So look, they can blame this on COVID zero. Yeah, it's their fault, but they, you know, there's a reason for not hitting these numbers. And 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 the the larger, the larger thing is that they've changed their priority set. So yes, they still talk about high levels of growth for some reason, although the narrative's changing, particularly in the last couple of weeks. Uh, but but that's that's not what they're focused on. It's not what they're worried about. They're going to try to deliver enough growth so they don't have a political problem. But the reality is they're trying to do some structural changes that are very mm-hmm. painful, and they're not going to be worried about the high, hitting the high levels of growth anymore.
2: Leland, a 720 yuan gets you out Not to 2005, but it just all of a sudden gets you out to a new weak Renminbi strategy. What's the level of Renminbi where that unravels? Do you have in your head a 7.xx level that this becomes difficult?
10: I, I don't because it's a it's a dollar story, not a not a yuan story. Um, you know, if this were the if this were uh, sort of a, a B exploding because of the weak Chinese economy, while the dollar stays pat against other currencies, you'd have a different dynamic. People would read into it differently. Right now, everything is weakening against the dollar. So right, the, the Chinese goal is to maintain relative stability, relative strength as much as possible against against the rest of the world, but but making sure that things don't break on the way up. So so they want stability. There isn't a number. It all depends on how strong the dollar gets over the next you know, six to 12 months. Leland, thank you, sir. Always important stuff with Leland Miller. It's great, isn't
4: he? Leland Miller there at the China Beige Book oh. International.
2: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.